And welcome to Fascinating Nouns. Now, if you are listening to this transmission, we are still the galaxy's most trusted source for incredible people, places, things, and ideas. Now, together we arrive at this curious nexus point, and we will explore the strange, unusual, offbeat, bizarre, intriguing, interesting, invigorating, quirky, quaint, quizzical, weird, wild, wacky, the fun, the frivolous, and the fringe, plus all the spaces in between. I am your host, Daniel J. Glenn. Hello, Fascination. Welcome to the show. So I'm sure every person listening has observed children playing in a yard. And let's say a stiff breeze has rolled through town the night before and knocked a couple of branches out of your tree. Well, what happens? Kids run out there, they see that stick, and what do they do? They pick it up and they immediately start swinging it around trying to hit each other with it. This is something that has been hardwired into human DNA since the beginning, since the caveman days. Technology has advanced, and those sticks became spears, which then became swords. And then sword fighting was born. Now, sword fighting existed in the, Middle e- the, the, the medieval times up until about the 1800s. But there's one man, Dr. Guy Windsor, who has become a world-renowned expert in sword fighting, not just in a longsword, but the rapier, uh, the medieval dagger, all sorts of styles, and we are going to learn about them today. I'm very excited about this because I, too, was not immune. I watched Star Wars, loved the lightsaber scenes, and, you know, uh, I watched the Three Musketeers movie when I was a kid. So sword fighting has been something I've been enamored with, uh, but uh, it's a little dangerous, but we're going to learn how to do it safely, and and just what is it about this this ancient style that still enamors people today. So let's get right into this with Guy, Dr. Guy Windsor. Thank you so much for being on the show today. In fact, you are the second guy that I've had in, in six weeks. I had a person named John Guy. I did know that. Yes, that's his surname. Yeah, yeah, right. It's a little different, but but good enough for a joke, right? I mean, it's good enough. Yeah, to, sure. <laughs> uh, but that, you know, that's kind of fun. But I did notice one thing here, Guy that I could not get an answer to, and I'm a little embarrassed about that, but that you are, especially on your Twitter handle, you're Dr. Guy Windsor. Are you a medical doctor? Do you have a PhD? I know that barbers were surgeons back in the day, so why not a swordsman? I have a PhD in recreating historical martial arts. Oh, wow. That's very specific. Yeah, so yeah, the the academic, a lot of of what I do is academic, and uh, a few years ago, I put some of the work I'd done together as a PhD proposal and then got a PhD. What I love about that is essentially what a PhD should be is where someone has mastered a certain skill to the point where they're the expert in it, right? I mean, that's really what a doctorate is. They take a specific subject matter, research it, write a dissertation. You know, that that makes sense to me. Usually it's a, uh, the requirement is you advance the sum of human knowledge. Sure. By, yeah. by some measurable degree. So, <laughs> right. And you've done that. I mean, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, at, least, at least the people who examined me for my PhD think I've done that. <laughs> and that's all that matters. You just have to convince them. You, yeah. know, you, don't, you don't need to convince right. me. You've got to convince them. <laughs> you're a swordsman. You're, you teach it. You study it. Uh, but you've got other skills as well. You're not just the, the modern-day Jamie Lannister. Um, you know, you play right. the trumpet, I believe, right? Is that, is that true? What? 
Is that that's right? Uh, I, I, I used to play the trumpet at school, and these days I play the trumpet with my mum anytime I see her because she's a piano teacher. Right. And that's literally the only trumpet playing I ever do. Is that, but what? are you pretty good? No. Okay. No, really right. not. <laughs> so there's no there's no video of this. I can't put it up on the website. Do you have one? Hand, do you have a trumpet handy? Can we get some? Okay. Of this going? I I do have a trumpet handy. There's one right over there. Um, no, I'm not going to play it on your podcast. <laughs> oh, you what a wimp! Was, You're a swordsman. No. You're supposed to be brave. What is going on? No, 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 no. no. I'm a podcast host, host myself, and I know uh-huh. that you have to put the the interests of the listeners <laughs> first, right? And trust me, I could play the trumpet for you. In fact, it's, right. It's your show. If you want me to, I will take it out and I will I will tootle something for you. That's fine. Uh-huh. But you are likely to lose at least half of your listenership. <laughs> well, I, can you can I at least see it? Can I just know that you're not? Yeah, of course. I want to see it. All right. All right. That's those are definite hinges being unlocked on a trumpet kit. <laughs> you do have it. I love it. Oh, and it's silver too. That is cool. Oh, I like that. You know, I used to play the French horn and the baritone. You got it. Can you do, can I get one note? Perfect. That's all. Good. Oh, that's wonderful. <laughs> that was middle C. Is that what that? Uh, yeah. That's yeah. Middle, that was middle C. You like that? C, you C like below that? the stage for a trumpet player. You like that ear that I have? Uh, you can put it away. All right. <laughs> Thank you for playing along. Yeah, I, I am not known for my trumpet playing. I promise you. <laughs> well, you know, I used to play baritone and French horn. Uh, so you know, the brass instruments. You know, uh, while 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 I'm not the, an expert in it, I definitely. You know, I, I did my part as well. Um, but you, you know, you mentioned again a guy after my own heart. You did a nice, you fit in a nice shameless plug there right at the beginning. I respect that guy. Let's talk about this podcast that you have. It's called uh, the Sword Guy, right? Yeah. Um, although when you look at the website, it looks like the's Word Guy. Uh, but the Sword Guy. So what what do you do? I mean, is it similar? Is it an interview show? Is it do you teach people how to fight over you know yeah. your podcast? What do you do? I basically I interview interesting people who do historical swordsmanship of some description or uh, they do something even vaguely related I'm, i basically i look at it as an excuse to ask interesting people to chat to me for an hour or two and you know if you just yeah. you know, meet somebody random on the internet and say oh you seem interesting would you mind if i give, gave you a ring and we could like chat for a couple of hours yeah they think you're a weirdo yeah but if you say um could i interview you for my podcast that's apparently quite normal Right. right. <laughs> You're preaching to the choir. That's my life, man. That's right, my life. Exactly. exactly. So, so you, can, you can get people who you would just like to talk to because you think they have something interesting to say. And I, I try to have at least a plausible connection to my field. Mm-hmm. Um, not least because if I'm approaching someone who is completely outside my field, uh, they, the first thing that comes up in their head is, well, why are you asking me? Right. And so I have to I have to be able to connect it some way to what I'm doing. Right. Okay. Um, that makes sense. Yeah. But, uh, but you know, it can be pretty damn tenuous. <laughs> and some of them are. I've looked through some of the some of the connections, and they're very yeah. clever. i got to give you that. Some of the connections are clever. Uh, but that's all you need, right? You just have to have, have yeah. an excuse to bring them on. And, you know, I respect that's that. Right. I, you know, you've got quite a show. We'll put links to it for people who, who want to listen to that. Uh, and, 
a couple other things here, guy, we got to get to. You Not only are you a swordsman, not only are you a trumpet player, clearly world-class. I'm not a trumpet player. <laughs> <laughs> clearly a uh, world-class trumpet player. Uh, yeah. You are also a woodworker. You worked in, you were a yeah. cabinet maker for a while. Um, you, you also did, this is really cool. You created some hardcover books. Yeah, I made these these bookcases um, and this, this mantelpiece. Oh, wow. And the, and the sword rack. Uh, I'm in the process of building the cabinets to go underneath the bookcases. That's great. And I assume you don't use swords to cut the wood. You use actual you know, no. saws and stuff. That's no, crazy. Uh, proper, That's, yeah, yeah proper, of course. Proper, proper, you know, woodworking tools. Of course. Because basically, I like shiny, sharp steel. Right, and that can that can <laughs> be that's that, deadly. <laughs> that, that could be a chisel, sure. or it could be a sword, or it could be a knife, or it could be a saw, or it can be a plane, or whatever. I yeah, if it's if it's shiny and sharp, I'm, I probably like it. Well, now, see, now we're honing in on your passion here, right? I mean, you're not just a guy who teaches swords. There's much more to this for you, and I think now we're getting at the heart of the matter here: is this shiny, sharp objects that can maim and kill human beings. I think that might be yes. the quintessential piece. That we just uncovered. Um, uh, I do like weapons. It's yeah. true. Um, <laughs> you know, I can shoot, but I'm I'm much more of a sidearm rather than a long arm sort of person. So I would take pist- pistols over rifles. I'm not saying they're better weapons. It's just like I am more attracted to pistols than I am to rifles. More attracted to swords than I am to pole arms. Got it. Um, with woodwork, it's it's I guess a question of scale. I tend to like building things that have. So we say less than six feet in any dimension. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, just, just the scale I like to work at. Yeah. So like you'd create, you'd, you'd, you'd make a coffin, right? Like it, you could put the people in it. It's around <laughs> six feet made with wood. You're like an I under, could, you're like a wild I, west undertaker. I, I, I could, I could make a coffin. I've, I've never tried to make a coffin. Have you ever and needed sure to? That's the better question. No, never needed to. Um, <laughs> I'm sure there are technical challenges there because because that funny angled <laughs> corner at the shoulders. Yeah, that's actually a tricky bit of woodworking. You'd be surprised. <laughs> You'd be surprised. <laughs> well, I mean, hopefully you'll never need it. I know you are good enough to need it, but hopefully you won't ever. And the last thing uh, here, really quickly, this is I love this. You created a card game called I'm gonna yeah. get this wrong. Autia, which teaches sword Adaptia. styles. Audacia, and it's it's kind of like a dueling card game, you know, in the realm of like Magic: The Gathering in a way. But the cards you use to counter and attack are actually skills uh, and and techniques that that are in the um, the Italian fighting style that you that you study. Yeah, that's right. Um, so basically, if you have a deck of cards, that's a character. I have a deck of cards, that's another character. Yeah, and the guard positions and the blows and the way the actions interact. And also the close quarter combat stuff, you know, pommels to the face and yeah. kicks to the nuts and throws on the ground and whatnot. Sure. Um, those those all come from a specific historical source. Sure. And when you play a game according to the rules, um, you can reproduce the game with swords and there are no logic problems. Right. Okay. It actually makes sense with the swords. Um, I like that you mentioned kick to the nuts. I imagine that goes back even further. I, that, that predates sword fighting, I think, is the old oh, yeah, kick sure. to the nuts. Right. Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah. I and honestly, sure. if, if there's no kicking to the nuts, I'm probably not that interested. <laughs> like, like, you know, modern sport fencing, they look at you really strangely and yep. they, they ban you from the competition if you sure. kick your opponent's nuts, even if he leaves them wide open. <laughs> it's, it's very frowned upon <laughs> in, like, in most competitive sports. <laughs> like, you know, wear a cup, and if you leave them open, boom, a nice, friendly little 
little Open tap. The cup, <laughs> right. Let you know you made a mistake. It's a little love tap, you know? I don't see any yeah. problem with it. Um, yeah, but, you know, uh, but, you know, kids like to, you know, kick people in the nuts. And from what I was looking, maybe this kick to the nuts thing started when you were a kid, because that's when you kind of got into fencing, right? I mean, isn't that, is that right? Or when did the sword thing start? I first got into martial arts when yeah. I was about, I, I, I first encountered the idea of martial arts when I was about six. Oh, that's early. Um, okay. I, yeah. Well, because I, I read this Asterix comic. Um, the 12 tasks of Asterix. Mm-hmm. And in one of them, he has to defeat the studio champion. Yeah. And, you know, he was little and small. His big, strong friend, Obelix, got completely pasted by the judo champion. <laughs> right. But Asterix, using his cunning and cleverness, uh, managed to defeat the judo champion. Right? Got it. Uh-huh. And I, I, that's what gave me that. Hang on. Little people can beat big people if they're skilled. And clever people can beat skilled people <laughs> if they're cleverer. Right. I like this. That's great. Yeah, right? that's great. And then I kept that interest without any kind of external forces. You know, there, there were no martial arts clubs anywhere near where we were or anything like that until I was about, I think, 10. We moved to Botswana and there was a karate club and I joined that. And then I got into fencing because I was told that fencing was sword fighting. And yeah. the modern sport of fencing is peripherally related to sword fighting, but it isn't really the same thing at all. So we, so, you know, I did that because it was the closest thing I could get. And then when I got to university and I met people who were similarly frustrated with the sport of fencing as right. not being like a real sword fight. Right. Yeah. Um, we sort of started coming together and, and that's actually when I discovered this amazing book. Hang on. Where is it? Hey, I just it. reorganized everything. This, this book here. The Sword in the Centuries by Alfred Hutton. Okay. Uh, this was published in 1901. My grandfather was a fencer. And so I found this in my granny's house. This is after he died, unfortunately. And it's got all sorts of stuff in here about historical people fighting with swords and references to wow. books that they wrote that tell you how to do it. So I was like, hang on. Are you seriously telling me that maybe in 1600, people who were fighting with rapiers actually wrote books about how to do it? Yeah. Oh, my God. So then we started looking for these books and we found some of them and started recreating these historical sword fighting styles. This is in like the early 90s. And of course, what we were doing back then was crap, but it was, you know, (laughs) so we say the crap that eventually fertilized the the tree that grew out of it. Right. Sure. Yeah. I mean, crap is fertilizer, isn't it? Uh, I mean, because this is kind of, I mean, I love the fact that you have a, uh, you know, a 120 year old book, but one of the interesting things, you know, okay. You want an old book? Yeah. That's what he got him. This one, this one was printed in 1568. Really? Yeah. yeah. No cotton gloves. What are you doing? It's a, it's a book. You read it. (laughs) Uh, So there's a, I mean, the angle it so the light doesn't. Yeah, it's getting a little it's a little shiny there, but for people watching this on YouTube, there we go. Holy cow. There you go. Yeah. It's like um, a comic book. So yeah, this is this is Achille Morozzo. Well, most of it is text. Um, this is Achille Morozzo's um, The Art of Arms from the first edition is from fifteen thirty six. This is the 1568 third edition. Wow. Um, so yeah, I I have but my absolute favorite. Wow. Okay. This one, this is this is Rodolfo Capoferro's Gran Simulacro de Arte de Luso de la Scanna. Yeah. A great representation of the art and use of, of fencing. And it is probably the most famous rapier book ever written. 
And this was printed in 1610, so it is 412 years old. Wow. I, I, right. I, I, I do mine. <laughs> can't have it. <laughs> I will tell you, uh, you know, as uh, I, I'm one of those weirdos, I watch you touching that with your oily fingers, and, and I'm like, oh, my They're God. They're oily. They're clean. Oh, my God. Clean. Microscopic oil is always, and there's a bacteria. No, 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 no. Okay, okay, okay. With swords, yeah. this is true. All right. Right? If I touch the blade of the sword, I have to clean the sword because the acid in sweat mm-hmm. eats into the steel. You get rusty fingerprints and it's nasty. Okay. Right? But books like that, it's perfectly okay. As long as your hands are clean, it's perfectly okay to handle them. And you know, as long as they're in reasonable conditions, the, the binding is, is still intact and whatnot. Yeah, those are great um, conditions. It's perfectly all right to handle them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, that's, that's almost certainly the original cover as well. Um, often these things are rebound through the centuries, like the, the Morozzo was rebound sometime in the 19th century. Um, but that is almost certainly like the first binding that that book ever had. Unbelievable. Um, so probably bound in some 1610, 1611, something like that. But yeah, so the vellum that it's bound in actually kind of likes being handled. <laughs> are you sure about, are you making this up? Are you, are you sure about this? No, no, are you getting your facts not. here? No, no. I asked, I asked an antiquarian librarian. Okay. Right. And they said, they said that some of the books in the antiquarian library that this works at, they would actually take them out and just, just handle the book every now and then because it's better for the leather to get a little bit of Your movement. Like, skin oil on it. Yeah. yeah. That actually so, that makes sense. Okay. So, you know, and also, it, you know, it's, firstly, it's mine. I can do with it whatever I like. <laughs> Fair enough. I <laughs> guess also, so. But also, also, right, it is... I mean, I, I've, I've written literally five books on the content of that book, right? I care about that book enormously. Yeah. You hugged it. I'm not going to do something I did. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm not going to do anything that's going to damage it. Sure. So, yeah, right, it's, it's fine. I mean, you're right. If you, if you don't know any different, you should be more careful than otherwise. But I have it on the best authority that, it's fine. All right. I, I won't was... press charges. I, I won't press charges. Okay. Because, I mean, this is being recorded. I could submit this as evidence in any court throughout the, you could. Throughout the, throughout the world. You could. Uh, now, you did You did forget to mention one thing here, Guy. This is – I do a lot of research here, man. So when you leave out little details, I got to call you on them. I believe Seven. you mentioned in another interview that you wanted to get into martial arts because you had a big brother that bullied you. That's right. Uh, That's right. So I want to hear about that. Now, I was the big brother – and I would always, you know, okay. I, I noogied my little brothers too. And in response, you know, my youngest brother became a power lifter. So I can't do that anymore. <laughs> so yeah. big, as, as a member of the big brother, I think we push our little brothers to be better because no one protects them better than their big brother. But no one gives them a beating like their big brother either. So this put this, put this pushed you and look, look what he did for you. For me? Yeah. He's perhaps overstating the case. <laughs> but okay, you know. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, he, he and I are fine now. I mean, and yeah, for the last, good. I don't know, what, 30 odd years, I've been big enough and strong enough to. And he know he's not a martial artist, and he knows that yeah, if yeah, yeah. he tried anything, he would, you know, he wouldn't come off too well. Right. So, sure. Uh, <laughs> well, I feel like it touched on a, on a touchy subject here, so we can move along. <laughs> no, it's okay. Uh, but, but uh, you know, big brothers, I think they're they're extraordinarily 
important to all of this. Uh, but, you know, I want to talk a little bit about some of this. You know, you mentioned all these old books that you have. There's a couple of really cool things here because essentially what you do is you create a historic, you, you teach historically accurate sword fighting. And in some ways, you know, it's kind of like Latin. It's a dead language, but people still learn it because of the influence that it has. Or just because they like it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, people, I know people who've learned Latin just because they wanted to. They thought learning Latin would be a cool thing to do, and right. then it was. Yeah. And it's, use, and it's strangely useful, although you wouldn't think of it on the surface because it's not sure. spoken. But, um, but one of the things, I want to get into some of the old stuff that you have, but you know, when we were, right before we got on, you showed me an old sword that you have that I think you said was 300 years old. Mm -hmm. I love this because you know, rock stars have collections of guitars, you know, ancient guitars. Uh, there it is. We'll get, well, I, want, I want to just show it in a second. Because uh, one thing that I love about it is when I went to college, there was this girl that I knew who played the viola, and she had a 250-year-old viola, and she told me about how, you know, the, the way the vibration in the wood, it, the longer it's in there, it, it makes it a, it's a better sound, and they were better created. It wasn't a Stradivarius or anything. Uh, but, you know, th things were made differently when people cared about it, it wasn't made in some factory. And the sword, I I'm curious about the sword. I want to see it and and what what it's, what is its importance and how does it compare to modern day swords? Okay, well, almost all of my swords are made recently, like in the last 20, 30 years, um, because I use them, mm -hmm. right? And when you use a sword, you also use it up. Particularly if you're doing blade-on-blade -blade contact, there is damage that happens to the, the weapon over time and it, eventually it wears out. Right. Right. And of course, if you sharpen it, every time you sharpen it, you're making it a little bit smaller right. and like a pencil, eventually right. it comes down to a stub. Sure. Um, but I have a couple of antiques that I use for, I don't actually collect swords, um, but I have a few antiques which I buy because there's nothing quite like holding the real thing. Yeah. And um, they are sufficiently, should we say, low status antiques. That I can you know, <laughs> practice solo stuff with them, and yeah. it's it's not going to do them any harm. And I even do a little bit of pair work with the small sword because it's not two sharp edges coming together. The edges on a small sword are actually quite blunt. It's the point that matters. It's, it's the only or one of the very few thrust-only sword styles. Oh, interesting. Um, so, yeah. You know, also, you know, if you have an actual sharp point pointed at you. Uh -huh. You feel differently about the drills than if it is a blunt <laughs> pointed at you. There's an evidence of right? danger. There's so, a little bit of there's a little bit of yeah, exactly, you know, yeah, exactly. It feels different. And, and if it has a if it has like a bobble on the end, right, you can see it more clearly. So take that away, and when it's pointed at you, it's very difficult to see where the sword is. Yep. Right. Yep. And you know it's sharp. And if you make a mistake, that thing is going to go through your skin. And so. It, focuses the mind totally differently yeah now i'm absolutely not recommending that that people just take sharp weapons and start playing with them sure um but for people in my profession i think it is it is useful to be able to deliver that experience for the student what is it like to face a sharp sword what is it like to be holding a sharp sword how do sharp swords behave against each other that sort of thing yeah um and also you know it's it's kind of cool if i'm teaching a student small sword and i give them a an original this is from about i guess 1780 something like that mm -hmm. so not 300 years old maybe 250 um give them one of these to actually do the basic drills with it comes alive for them in a way that 
a modern replica, however good the replica is, doesn't quite have the same feeling. Yeah. Uh, I mean, the way you talk about that, you got a dark side to you, guy. I mean, this point, the maiming oh. of the skin, you know, teaching you want the uh, kids to know about this. Uh, there's something dark inside. No, okay, it's okay. They're grown up. Some grown ups, mostly. Grown ups are dark as shit anyway. Come on. No, but I mean, <laughs> that's just. <laughs> but there's something interesting about that because you know, I think you are right. Is when you when you're a lot of the martial arts that's taught today. You know, when when I when I was studying martial arts, a lot of it is. You're not doing anything at speed. Um, there's no real danger uh, unless you learn how to fall. You're not really taking falls. Um, you, you, it's not useful if you're not doing it at speed against someone who's actually trying to hurt you, right? And I think the same is true with sword fighting. You can learn the moves, but if someone's doing it slowly, you're not going to get any better. And I think you – I'm look, I'm with you. I'm kind of playing with you a little bit here, but I'm with you. I think you do need to add that element of danger if you want to be really good at a martial art because the whole point of it is to protect you from danger. If you never in introduce that dangerous part, you're never going to get better, in my opinion. Yeah, and the way we approach it – I, I have a sort of a theory for this, okay. and it's called um, bullshit, right? There is a dollop of bullshit in every drill. <laughs> okay. Okay. Yeah. It doesn't matter what you're doing. If you're training, yeah. if you're practicing, there is some bullshit present somewhere. Uh -huh. Okay. So let's say we're doing rapier, which is a historical system from um, late 16th century, early 17th century. Very famous. The Capofaro book that I showed you earlier is full of rapier fencing. Okay. Now, we can use blunt swords and protective equipment, and that allows us to actually fence each other to actually hit each other. Okay, but the system isn't designed for blunt swords, and it's not designed for you know, fencing your friends with protective equipment. Mm -hmm. Okay, but we do that to get the kind of the speed, and if it's done competitively or we have a tournament or whatever, we get a bit of pressure there, and it's it tells us certain things. Right. Um, we we can also do it with sharp swords and no protection, but that by definition requires that we go slowly and carefully because if you make a mistake, somebody's going to die. Okay. But isn't that the point? I mean, isn't that, that's exciting. People do bare knuckle boxing, yeah, right? right? I mean, but that's not generally lethal. Like, right. if, if I punch you in the face, yeah. I'm not bad at punching these days. Sure. If I punch you in the face, bad things will happen, but you're probably sure going to survive it. Hopefully. Right? If I, with a tenth of the physical effort, I stick a sharp sword through you, mm -hmm. you can die on the spot. Because mm -hmm. they just go right through. Right. They have tested these things. Okay. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So then. So, so the bullshit then is if you're doing it with sharp swords, you have to go slowly, going carefully, you're not actually hitting each other. And there are all sorts of other things we can do. So for instance, we can go, um, let's say you have a sharp sword and you are checking my ability to defend myself against a sharp sword, but you're wearing protective equipment and I'm, I have a blunt sword. You go as hard and as fast as you like, but in a very restricted choice of movements, you can only give me this one attack. And we have to, and we are looking to see whether I can actually defend myself against a sharp sword that's really trying to hit me, and I'm not wearing any protection. We don't do that very often, and I don't do that with my students, and they don't do it with each other. I do it with fellow professionals occasionally, just to, if I really need to test an interpretation. Mm -hmm. um, but, but again, the bullshit there is you can't do what you like. You can only use this one technique. Right. Yeah. Right. right yeah. And that, so you're you're always restricting the action in some way right yeah right because the real thing is you have a sharp sword i have a sharp sword and we try and kill each other <laughs> right, right and right, that yeah. is there's there is no there is no <laughs> practical or ethical 
or legal way to do that. Right. Right. And it's not even desirable. I don't want to do that. Right. I'm, I'd be very happy to get to the end of my career without having ever killed anyone. That'd be great. Are you sure guy? I'm getting a sense. Right. Maybe you want to, so, maybe you want to feel what that's like. Uh, no, 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 no. Okay. Definitely no. not. All right. No, no, no. I mean, there's, there's three, there's three fights you have to win in that scenario. Right. You've got the sword fight itself. Then you've got the legal fight. Right. Afterwards, when, when the law comes for you because you are now a murderer. Right. Right. And then you have to fight with your conscience for the rest of your life. Yeah. Now, if you are absolutely certain you can win all three fights, then maybe. But I might, w- I might win the first one. I'm sort of trained for it. I have slim chance of winning the second one because there really aren't any circumstances where it's legal to kill someone with a sword, even if they're attacking you with a sword. Mm-hmm. Um, and thirdly, I don't think that my conscience would be clear. I mean, there there are very specific like scenarios you could invent where yes, you yeah. have a clear conscience after that, but that that's not you and me fencing each other right. to find out who kills who. Right. Right. Yeah. That's that's you know I don't know somebody comes up comes at one of my children with a sword and I happen to be holding one. How incredibly unlikely, <laughs> but that's the only kind of situation you can think of where where I might win the legal fight and I'll probably win the conscience fight. Yeah. It's 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 a no win situ- situation, really. Well, what, what if I could? What if I could up your odds a little bit? I want to extrapolate on this. What if I could? You can obviously win the sword fight. All right, we can give you that. Now the legal fight. I don't know if you've ever heard of a little town. I know you're in. I believe you're in Finland. Um, no, I'm in the UK now. Oh, you are in the UK. I moved okay, to the UK six six years ago. Oh, okay. All right. So my my research is a lot of dates. So you're in the UK. Um, so you might be familiar with a little town in the United States called Las Vegas, where I think you can do just yes. about anything including kill a man with a sword i'm guessing in the dark recesses of las vegas you can do that so i got i can take care of your legality problem you know delusion is very powerful guy you could create a reason in your head to make it okay uh, i think i can lick yeah. all these three things you know uh if if you ever want to do it I, all i'm saying is i think i got i got your path to victory <laughs> <laughs> just as a side note. Uh, yeah. No, no uh, still no. I, all right. No. All right. Fair enough. I, I, I think. I think not. Because also, like, you have to be absolutely certain that the person you are fencing in that sort of situation has informed consent, that they actually understand what they're consenting to. Oh, and well, now you're making it really tricky. You're adding a lot of hurdles well, here. I can't get over all these no, hurdles. Ethics. Here. Ethics. You know. Ethics are hurdles. Morals are hurdles, the aren't they? Aren't they just historical? Historical martial arts. The great thing about them is they are completely obsolete. <laughs> right. right. Yeah. They yeah. are. They are. It's not like I don't know. Like MMA is not obsolete. There is people who train MMA professionally and they get to use it for real in the ring. Sure. Okay. And there are all sorts of other like combat arts which are not obsolete. Yeah. Right. Like for example, modern military training. Okay. But learning to fence for the longsword or rapier, obsolete. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Which means that we have a hollow deck for the study of ethics. Sure. Right. We have this kind of this mental construct we can go to to look at, OK, when would this be OK? When would that be OK? OK, in the in the book here, I'm supposed to break his arm and then hit him many times with my sword. Right. Um, OK, what situation justifies that? Right. So we, we have this. It's it's one of the things I really like about historical martial arts is that they're historical. They are obsolete. So you don't have to worry about 
actually ever using it. Like, right. you know, I do pistol shooting, right. or I have, when I lived in Finland, I did quite a lot of pistol shooting. And I would, I have had the opportunity to carry a gun in parts of America, for example, and I won't do it. Because the only reason you would carry a gun, I think, is if you are willing to use it. Mm-hmm. And if you have it, you are more likely to get yourself into a situation where you would end up using it. And then you have those three fights again. Yep. Right? Do you survive the gunfight? Do you win the legal fight? And can you live with your conscience for the rest of your life? Right. It's, it's much better not to have that capacity if you're not 100% comfortable with using it. Right? It's like a friend of mine, when I was looking at buying a car, and he had a four-wheel drive, and I said, do you think I should get a four-wheel drive too? And he said, well, I said, doesn't it mean you don't get stuck? He said, no, it just means you get stuck in much worse places. <laughs> right, yeah, yeah. I mean, look, I was kidding. I'm not, I wasn't really going to set up uh, the murder of a man <laughs> in, in Las Vegas. Uh, you took it. You definitely took it down the route where you maybe thought I was serious. I just want to make it clear to the listeners, I wasn't going to set this up for you. If you come to the States, I'll show you a good time, guy. I'm happy to hang out. We can. I'll show you a good time. But I won't take you to an underground sword fighting arena. That's off the, that's off the table, I think. I think we can both agree. I, I'm, I'm not sorry to hear okay. it. Yes, I think that's probably better. All right, all right perfect. Uh, but you do mention kind of a couple of interesting things there, which is... You know, you said you, you you parry a blow and then you're supposed to break an arm and beat a man to death, you know, uh, with your sword. Now, how do you know this? This, I thought, was really fascinating. You know, you mentioned a couple of these old books. Uh, there's one in particular uh, that you train on, and I'm I'm trying to get the name here. Uh, it's the Fjorda. Um, oh, you're going to pull it up, aren't you? This one. Fjorda Battaglia. Yeah. 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 Um, the, the technique I was thinking of when I said that. Yeah. Is I love that you can just pull this, it right up. <laughs> this one here. Well, this is my study, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. right, right, right. right. Um, okay. Well, basically, basically, what's happened is um, for for jurists listening, this is the uh, ninth, tenth, eleventh play of the Master of Zogostretto. Okay. Um, yeah. In the in the Getty manuscript, just so we're clear. Um, yeah. So basically, the swords have been crossed, and you end up you wrap up the person's arm, and he says. Basically, I give you a good dose of uh, blows and thrusts. So you, you've, you've got his arm all locked up, and ideally give it a bit of a dislocate if you can. And then you're hitting them in the head with a sharp sword and stabbing them in the guts with a sharp sword. And they're not going to survive that. No, no. It's very unlikely. Very unlikely. Right? But it's – so the medieval martial arts are explicitly not self-defense. They are military training for knights. Right. Right. And a yeah. knight is effectively an officer in the military. Right. Right. Yeah. So. So, yes, the situation is different. So there are many techniques for um, basically subduing your opponent without killing them, mm-hmm. because in all sorts of situations, including tournaments and the battlefield. Right. Um, it was often the case where if you could capture the knight alive. You got to keep their armor and their weapons and stuff. Right. But you'd do that if they were dead too. Sure. But right. you capture them alive, um, you can ransom them back to their family huh. or to their commander. Okay. Right. Yeah. So, so you know, one of the reasons why knights wore super fancy armor to look rich on the battlefield is it is an it is a a non cowardly way of saying, look, I've got all this money. 
kill me and obviously you get to keep it but i come from money <laughs> take me alive and my family will pay tons of money to get me back again right? oh that's funny and, and i love like, that yeah like one of the most one of the most that's famous brilliant. knights in history marshal boussico uh jean lemengo the second who was marshal of france he led the french knights at agincourt in 1415 obviously the english won that battle um and you had to point that Boussico out was captured. you had to point that out yeah right right of course right but Boussico was captured and taken back to england and he was there for like five years nearly before he died in still in in england because the french crown was trying to get his ransom together but they didn't have enough money to buy him back wow right <laughs> yeah the, the kickstarter didn't so, exist so, yeah i mean yeah yeah so so they you know there are there are techniques for taking your opponent alive. There are techniques for disarming them and leaving them alive. Techniques for disarming them and then breaking their arm and murdering them. It, it depends on the situation. Sometimes you just want to kill them. Sometimes you want to kill them stylishly because everyone is watching. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, every what I love about it is every situation is kind of accounted for in this book, uh, and and it's it kind of reads like a comic book. I mean, it's it's four panels, and it tells you the move, the counter move, how to do it. Yeah. Uh, and I want to I'm going to make you a little jealous here, guy. Um, mm -hmm. I live probably two miles away from the Getty where the manuscript is held that you've based your life on. Hopefully fuck. I am. I am right there. It's not on Can display. I say fuck on your show? It's not on. Yeah, sure. Uh, it's no, it's no, not no, on no, display, but I have, I have friends who have friends at the museum. Really? Well, could you, yeah. could you get me a private viewing? Only if I'm with you. Well, come on in. I mean, yeah. when you're here, I mean, it's well, let's, right. let's roll in there. Check it okay. out. I mean, because okay. I, I, I can't see it. I don't have access to it. Um, but this this was this is basically the foundation of everything that you teach. All, all the medieval stuff, uh, all of the medieval knightly stuff okay. that I teach. Yeah, I, I, I Quite do a bit. style spanning. Right. Right. Centuries. Um, but but this but the particular style that that you teach it's in this it's this book and I think there's one of four there's another one in New York I don't know why the the states have two of them one in Italy uh, and then the third the fourth one is I forget where but there are four of these Paris okay Paris. so there's Paris. four of these manuals one of them's in the Getty but what is it about this particular manuscript is it different than the other ones did it speak to you was it easy to access uh, and then also how did you get access to it um, all right so. I first saw uh, Fiore's work. Um, it was the, the copy that's in Italy, the Pisani Dossi manuscript, as it's known as. A facsimile of that was made in, I think, 1903. And I saw a fifth-generation photocopy, or maybe tenth-generation <laughs> photocopy, of, of, the, of the facsimile. Oh, God. Yeah. Right? Xerox. Like, yeah. And I was like, yeah. oh, my God, look at all this cool stuff. And then we, we were working as best we could from that. This is in about 94, 95. We were working as best we could with that. And then it was discovered, I forget who actually found it, that there was this manuscript at the Getty Museum, right? Which was like so much better than, firstly, it's not a dodgy photocopy, but also the Bersani version, while it's complete, it doesn't have nearly so clear explanatory text. So where the Getty manuscript might have a paragraph saying, stand with your left foot forward, when he does this, do that, step like this, hit like that, throw him on the ground like so, and we're done. The, the Pisani Dossi one might just say, and I will end you right. right. No, yeah, that's it. Right. right. So so we got some, um, again, 
dodgy photocopies of a microfiche that had been made of this mm-hmm. manuscript. Um, I started looking at that. It was really, really difficult to read because it was quite low resolution and the handwriting is you know, it's quite tricky. Um, and then through the 2000s, um, the one in the Morgan Library was discovered, which is similar to the Getty manuscript, but it has much less material. It's about maybe a quarter mm-hmm. as big because uh, it's, un- it's unfinished. But most of the text is the same. It's got one or two bits that are different, which are really useful. Um, but by this point, we were working from high-resolution scans of the Getty manuscript. Okay, and the then in like I think 2009, 2010, maybe a bit earlier. The manuscript in France was discovered. Um, I mean, the librarian knew it was there, but no one had thought to go <laughs> through the library archives and yeah. find it. Because these things, these things right. went on the internet. They were, you had to actually go to the library and dig through their catalogs and go, can I have a look at this? And then, oh my God, it turns out to be another copy of well, also, I mean, librarians, librarians were important back then because they knew the books that were in there. You know, I mean, that, that, that's the importance right. of having an archivist. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, so we, most people who study Fiore do most of their work on the Getty manuscript because it's the most complete and it has the most descriptive um, text. The, the text is the most explicit and useful. The Morgan is similarly explicit. But it's, a, but it's missing a lot of the material. Um, the Pisani Dossi is similarly complete, but it's got much less useful text. And the French copy, uh, the copy in France, it's in Latin. It's a bit later. It's almost certainly written after Fiori died. Um, and it has, again, less descriptive text. And because it was written after or it, was, it was produced after he died we don't know how authoritative it is and in my view it doesn't add greatly to what we're doing with mm-hmm. the getty manuscript um so you haven't you're lucky you live two miles away from the best copy well i do love that the other one's in in latin and i talked about it being a dead language and borderline useless well this is the time when you got to bring in a latin expert right they right. come in pretty handy with things like this yeah i had to do latin for four years at school and I absolutely hated it. And then did you, though? The, the old, I did, totally hated it. Um, the, oldest, the oldest manuscript of sword fighting we have is called the Royal Army's Manuscript 133, also known as the Tower Effect Book. And it's over there, of right. course. I imagine it um, was. Not the original. <laughs> original copy, first edition. Um, but it's, but it's, it's, written, it's written in, um, in, it's almost entirely in Latin with a few technical terms in German. And, so like when I finally saw a, a again a dodgy photocopy in the late nineties, I was like, "Hang on, this is Latin." Yeah. Hang Wait on a second. I had to learn Latin for four years. Hang on. <laughs> I could, you know, with a Latin dictionary and everything, I can actually start piecing together bits of what this actually might mean. Yep. Yep. Right now, my Latin was never good enough to do a translation of it. Unfortunately, we have um, Professor Jeffrey Forgang who has done. Um, he's actually done three editions of a translation of it. So, you know, we know, we know what it says and his Latin is way better than mine will ever be. But yeah, you never know what might be useful. You never know. Well, and the other thing that's kind of interesting that I don't think people realize is if I'm, if I'm understanding this correctly, the, 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 all the manuscripts are written in verse. I mean, almost like Shakespeare, uh, that you, is that true? Cause I think you wrote a book that 
puts them into f- yeah. is that true or is that kind of kind of true yeah okay it's not not all the books okay. um the the getty manuscript is certainly written in verse um but it's not it's not kind of it's not like dante okay it's not right perfectly crafted it's not perfectly crafted verse okay. it's just just sort of stuff rhymes also because italian is a very easy language to rhyme in yeah because you know, the ending of the words tend to be fairly similar, so ordering them so that the, the endings match up, so you get rhymes, mm. is, is quite straightforward. Mm. Um, but hang on. I think what you're referring to is I took a bit of... Um, a bit of what Fury wrote about the dagger mm-hmm. and rewrote it, uh, so sort of got translated it into English, and then organized that translation into a sonnet. Okay, yeah. Um, just, just to demonst- basically to demonstrate to my students who would be reading my stuff that this stuff is written in verse. Not that it's terribly important that it's written in verse, just that it's an interesting thing that you should know. And, and that kind of got me started, and I ended up writing a short um, kind of collection of verses called the Armadzari Vademikum. Yes, right. Um, which is mm-hmm. basically the, the key points from Fiore. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. Uh, rendered into verse in english that's 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 a that's a double translation right because you have to take it out of verse and then you have to take it from italian into well yeah from, from italian into english, english yeah and then then take the english and organize it into verse or rewrite oh i it see yeah, verse, yeah yeah right yeah yeah okay wow that's something <laughs> that is i mean that's a passion project for sure because i don't know what the real world practical use of that is but it's still pretty cool I mean, kind of like sword fighting, I guess, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, the real-world practical use that I had in mind for it was mnemonic verses. The same way that my card ah. game, Adassia, is a... Is a yes. That developed out of the, the idea was, okay, we have these terms in Italian that people need to learn. Um, just like, you know, do judo, then the names of the throws are all in Japanese. If you do Italian longsword, then the names of the blows should be in Italian. Yes. Because that's what you're doing. Yes. Um, and so I created the card game as a mnemonic device so that students who are taking up the art could learn the, the names of things and how the system sort of fits together, um, in a kind of natural and fun way. And the Amazari Vanimukum predates that by a little bit. But I just thought, well, one of the functions of verse is that it's memorable. Yeah, that's right. right. It's, 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 it's. The, the rhyme scheme and the rhythm helps you remember the whole thing. And so creating these mnemonic verses um, that, you know, students can can remember helps them learn stuff. But let me give you an example. I, I use this in class all the time. Fiore has four unarmed guards, which are uh, posta longa, which is one arm extended, posta videnti gingiaro, which is... Um, one arm is well, the arm is bent at 90 degrees, and you're kind of pushing up. And posta frontale, which is like you're grabbing him by the face, and posta di tutto porta di ferro, which is both hands are down. Okay, so when you're getting students to do this, saying posta longa, posta di gingara, or whatever, it sounds like you're ordering dinner in an Italian right, restaurant. Right, sounds delicious. No one right. what you're yeah. But if you say if you say grab their throat, break their jaw. Thumbs in eyes, head on floor. Uh-huh. Knee to nuts. I remember. Yeah. 
Well, no, that's not one of the. Oh, four sorry, guards, sorry, sorry, right? sorry. I'm getting ahead of myself. So, getting ahead of so myself. they learn these, these four guards, right. grab their throat, break the jaw, thumbs and eyes, head on floor, and that gives them a mnemonic for learning those four positions, right. which they can, if they want to, then attach the Italian names to. Right. Okay. I mean, it's that is the type of thing that you need. I mean, I needed it when I was in school. I mean, you know, my very excellent mother, all that type said under new pines, all that stuff. Uh, wait, that's not how you do it. But you know what I'm saying. I mean, mnemonic devices worked very well. Um, and I love that. And I love it in the book, too, because if it's written in another language, as a new student coming in, you're already learning something that's difficult. You're learning something that you don't have any yeah. connection to, right? I mean, we don't sword fight now. There's yeah. you're coming in as an as an alien, basically, and then on top of that, the language that they're speaking is not something you may be familiar with. So uh, I think that that's yeah. extraordinarily useful, and I think you have to do it. So I take I take back my that it doesn't have practical use. I take that back. That might have been insulting. I didn't mean it to be. Uh, well, oh, no, 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 you're right. You're right because as far as I know, yeah. of the very few people who ever bought that that book because it's a it's, it's a niche within a niche within yeah, a yeah, niche within yeah, a niche yeah, right. right yeah as far as i know not a single person has actually memorized all of it what right of course for a mnemonic verse to be useful you have to memorize it <laughs> it's the only way it works that's, that's the point of it right exactly and i don't think anybody ever did that but i don't care i wrote it for fun and it was fun and i enjoyed doing it and also it helped clarify for me these concepts from fiore in a by, by working with them that way and trying to organize them into verse forms and whatnot, yeah. it just made me interact with the material in a different way, which made it more my own. It helped me absorb it. So I generally write stuff because I need to learn something. Yeah, right. So I write, I write the book to find out what, it, what should be in it. <laughs> right. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> yeah. yeah it, um, so, so yeah, I mean, I, I enjoyed writing it and, Maybe six people enjoy reading it, and nobody learned it, and I don't care. Well, I love that you said that because I, you know, I look I was looking at your body of of written work, and you have quite an extensive list. I mean, I think uh, I, I've read probably. I mean, this might be the most books I've read for an interview because I've read three or four. Really? Uh, yeah, the because um, you we haven't even gotten on training. Your your most recent, I believe, is the Guy Windsor method, uh, the the Windsor method, um, and that's a book that's is that. It's it's on training in general, you know, not in specific to swords. Well, yeah, it, well, the subtitle is the the principles of solo training. And yeah. yeah, it's not specific to swords. I mean, it's got stuff in it like how to sleep better, because if you sleep better, you train better, stuff like that. Well, I'll, I'll tell you a funny story. So I was given that book first to, to research, and so I was reading it, and I knew you're the sword guy. I mean, that's like how you know, the sword yeah. guy. So I'm reading it. I get to chapter one, and it's like, oh, you know, breathing techniques. I'm like, okay, cool. Chapter two, oh, this is you know how you eat better, sleep better. Okay, cool. Chapter three, chapter four, chapter five. Like, when are we getting into swords? <laughs> where, are <the> <laughs> yeah, where are the swords? I know. Uh, and I didn't. They're at the end. Yeah, luckily There's the book's not that long, end. so I was able to finish it and then top yeah. onto another. Uh, but what's interesting? Not only do you have a, an incredible written body of work, but you work with so many swords, and I think would be remiss if we didn't at least mention the number of swords you deal with, because I read about the long sword, uh, the medieval dagger, you mentioned the rapier, um, and I want to talk about that, but also one clarification, I'm giving you a lot here, and we can break it down, but one other thing that I thought was interesting in your book is that you, uh, so I, I played D&D &D as a kid, 
And, you know, when you could buy weapons in D&D, you could buy a short sword, a long sword, a great sword, a vorpal sword. You kind of lay out what that is. Those are very specific things. So I know I gave you a chunk, um, but, you know, we got, you got, uh, you probably talked for the next 10 minutes. We got 10 minutes. What, what are the, what, tell me about swords, what you like about them and those weird differences. Okay. Um, thing you have to remember is that swords are uh, tools for fighting with, firstly, but also fashion statements. And that is always true. Okay. So the reason they change is sometimes for practical purposes. So they are better adapted to a particular fighting context, but very often also simply for fashion. <laughs> That's okay? true nowadays. I mean, there's so many things that you can look at like a car. You, yeah. Some things are practical. Some things are functional. Right. Some things are stylistic. It, nothing changes, guy. That's, right. I love that. Right. And, 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 and like with cars, there isn't one best one. I mean, right. if you want to... Mm. If you want to drive extremely fast um, around corners and whatnot, you may want a Ferrari. But if you are, if you want to take your entire family on a on a week long road trip, you probably don't want to take the Ferrari. <laughs> right. Probably, right? probably, but yeah, probably, probably yeah. not. But and so you know, which car is better? It depends on what you want to use it for, right? So um, the swords I cover, or the, 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 should we say, the swordsmanship styles, which I have studied to the point where I'm comfortable teaching them. Um, we go like chronologically, the earliest is the sword and buckler system from 133 we mentioned earlier that requires a sword like this one, which is relatively short, single handed. It's sort of single handed knightly sword and it is used with a, hang on. <laughs> a buckler, a buckler. Yeah, there it is. Uh, yeah. so, a strange resemblance to a trash can lid, but yeah. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I have actually eaten barbecue <laughs> off it. It works well as a plate. <laughs> um, yeah, so it's it's huh. a this is a system. It's it's a knightly style of sword, but the swordsmanship play is very much not knightly combat. It is it is the sort of thing that apprentices in London got into trouble for doing right on Sundays okay. instead of going to right. church. Yeah, yeah, right. Um, so then, so that's. Can I ask one um, quick question before you move on from the buckler? Um, did they have a version yeah. that was strapped to your arm? Um, because when I always think of buckler, I think of one that's like you know, like a bracelet, but it's like a big shield. No, Is right. that not? You don't have to no, go into too much. A, a shield. Yeah. Is, uh, okay, a shield that's strapped to the arm. There are lots of different kinds of those: heater shields, rotella shields, etc. Um, but a buckler is specifically not one of those. Interesting. It's specifically, something held in the fist. Okay. Okay. Fair yeah. enough. Um, so, and there are lots of different styles of them, but they are, they're held in the fist and some of them have great big spikes on them. So you can, Oh wow. You know, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, Mine unfortunately came without the spikes. Right. Um, so then so moving through history, that's about 1340s. That book comes from. So 1400, we've got Fury, which you know, long sword, dagger plays, armored combat, wrestling, mounted combat, which I've done a little bit of, but I'm not a good enough rider to be really serious about it. Also spears, poleaxes, things like that. Um, then in the so 1500s, we have uh, a style called the Bolognese style, which is, I don't actually practice it that much, so we'll just skip that. Um, then in 1610, Capoferro, we have the rapier, um, which is very long and thin, and you know, it's, it's basically primarily for thrusting people, and it is it's it's so long and thin that it's really it's the first sword that you would look at it and go 
that's really designed for swanking around town. It's not really designed for the battlefield. Yeah. People did carry them on the battlefield, yeah. but it is more of a, it's what we think of as a civilian sword, although that distinction is, is not terribly useful in this period. Yeah. It's like swag. You um, flex with that in, in modern parlance. Right. Yeah. 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 But then by the 1700s, you have the development of the small sword. Legend has it that um, Louis XIV, the Sun King, um, was fed up with, rape, with with his courtiers kind of bashing their rapiers against each other because you know rapiers are like yay long, <laughs> yeah, yeah. and you're walking through the walking through the palace or whatever, and you knock you accidentally knock scabbards with someone, so then you, of course you have to fight them, and it's all a bit so. So legend has it, Louis started wearing a much shorter, lighter sword, mm-hmm. and so then everyone else did it right. too. Right, of course. Of course. Um, <laughs> there, there, is, there is no generally accepted historical um, theory for why the rapier gave way to the small sword. Okay. It's, not, it's not technically superior in any way, um, but it's just the fashion changed. Yep, okay. Right? And around the same time, because the small sword is completely useless against people who are trying to hit you hard with big swords, right? Like on a, on a battlefield, you have the cavalry saber. Okay, so in the 1700s, you get this very clear distinction between civilian type weapons, as as one writer put it. I think his name was Godfrey. Um, the small sword is the call of honor, and what he called the broadsword is the call of duty. <laughs> so you are fighting. You are fighting. Yeah. You are fighting for your prince mm-hmm. on uh, with a saber, and you are fighting for your own honor with a small sword. Got it. Okay. So, so that's that's the seventeen hundreds, and that's about the point where my interest starts to wane, because around about eighteen hundred, people stopped wearing swords, so it's no longer a sidearm, and there were still some duels fought with swords, with what's called like a dueling epée, for instance, or a dueling saber, yeah. and. But they were not carried as sidearms. They were, you have the, the kind of the beginnings of the, what became the sport of fencing. Mm-hmm. And you have affairs of honor being settled, usually with a pistol, sometimes with a sword. And if it's a sword, it's either um, epée de combat, which is a basically a sharp mm-hmm. epée, it's a thrusting weapon, or a fairly light, slim dueling saber. The military weapon hasn't really changed much since like the 1700s, late 1700s. So like saber is pretty much saber all the way through. Now, of course, my colleagues who are mad about sabers right. will be going, no, 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 they're completely <laughs> different. <laughs> but, you know, practically, right. really, what they're doing in 1890 with sabers is about what, the same as what they're doing in 1790 with sabers. Right, yeah. Right, there isn't. And the saber itself is functionally the same. Um, but of course, I, in between all of this, we have like various daggers and whatnot. And we also have falchions or messes. Mm-hmm. Um, let me see. This is probably... Oh. This is one falchion. So this is a hanger, which is a light, fairly short cutting sword that is... Um, well, I mean, famously, if you go to Dumfries... And you go to the Dumfries Museum, you'll see the hanger that was carried by um, Robert Burns when he was a customs inspector. Oh, wow. Okay. This sort of thing. Um, and 
But I mean, a fulcrum can also be. This is a glorious, oh, wow. glorious thing. Holy cow! Right. <clears throat> yeah, I mean, this is this blade is almost as long as a longsword blade. It's a single-handed weapon, though, and it's got a slight curve to it, and it has these three little spikes on the back. What they do is they put a little bit more mass right behind the bit you're hitting with. Aye. Yeah. 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 <laughs> this thing is sharp. And it yeah. Is, yeah. This is a gift from some of my students in, in Seattle. And, yeah, it just – it turns me into a into a murder pirate. Right. I know. I see. I, I knew we were going to do it. I knew we were going to turn you into a murder pirate. That's what we were – that was the <laughs> – we did it. Uh I mean, th- those are types of like those insidious little um, advancements, right? I mean, putting weight just behind where you hit. Is, I mean, <laughs> you know, but that's the goal. The goal is to, is to maim. Uh, I want to mention one other thing because the way you described, you know, uh, the pencil going down and you, when you sharpen a sword, you're using up the sword. There is something kind of poetic about that. I've always felt that way about pencils, right? Like there's a limited amount of creativity mm-hmm. in a pencil. And I, I love using pencils. And as you sharpen it, you're 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 using it. What's right? your favorite I mean, pencil? Uh, the uh, the Murado Black Warrior. Ah, have you ever tried a Tombow Mono One Hundred? I haven't, but I did do a whole fascinating nouns episode on pencils. I know I'm behind the times. You might be advanced. Did yeah, you? yeah. I, well, there's a woman in New York with oh, well, a whole pencil um, store, so I might need to go back and revisit my own episode. But I believe the one you're talking about might be one of the more popular ones. I, I love it. It's just. Fantastic. Yeah, but as you use it, you use it up. And so there's what I like about that is there's this poetic decision you need to make is is the creativity you're trying to do worth sacrificing just a little bit of that pencil? And the same goes for your swords. Is this fight? Is this is this spar? Is it worth sacrificing a little bit? Because as you mentioned, every time you sharpen it, what you're doing is taking off a little bit of that blade to make a nice little edge. So it's is it worth it? You know, you, you got to make that decision. Nothing in life is free, guy. You know that. Yeah, but speaking of free, the I have quite a lot of swords, as you can see, and some of them are, um, are blunt swords that are intended for pair practice. And, you know, this, this rapier, for instance, I've had this for 17 Gorgeous. years, and it's still working just yeah. fine. Yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't wear out particularly. Um, I have... Sharp long swords for pair practice, which are relatively cheap and sort of mass produced. I don't really care about them um, because they will wear away. And actually, one of the things I use most for sharp on sharp stuff are cheap machetes. You can get them for like, I don't know, $5 each. And you can do a lot of your, yeah, yeah. You can do a lot of blade work with them, regrind them, do a lot of blade work with them, regrind them, go out and, you know, kill some weeds (laughs) in the garden and do a bunch of blade work with them, regrind them. Um, and they are totally, they're priced to be disposable. Right. Um, and then I, of course I have swords, which I will never do sword on sword work with because they are just for solo forms and for cutting targets that are unlikely to damage the yeah. sword. And for impressing people that come over, I imagine those have got to be the nice ones. 
Uh, well, I, I will tell you, you know, it's funny. So when, when I was a kid, this is the last story I'll talk about shaving swords. My grandmother had a paring knife, like a small, you know, small little paring knife that had a, a wooden handle. I mean, this thing was ancient, but she had sharpened it so much throughout the years that the, what was originally a, a normal blade on a small paring knife had a, had a curve in it, right? So it went up and then in and then yeah. came out because she had sharpened it so many times. But there's like a strange beauty in that. You know, she used that up until her That's dying right. day. That was her knife. You know, she didn't throw it yeah. out because it was, you know, dif- dis- disfigured. She kept using it and basically used that knife to the nub, which is, I, I love that. That's one of my favorite stories about her. Yeah, and it's the same with my woodworking tools. I have I have chisels which are an inch shorter than when I bought them twenty right. years ago. <laughs> That's crazy. Well, I mean, you know, it, I think obviously your passion comes through here, you know, and and I think that your goal is to teach people more about this, more about the you know the historical yeah. significance of it, how to do it. I, you know, you've, in other interviews, you said you can do this at any age. You know, anyone can come do it. There's yeah. you were the only guy doing it twenty years ago. Now there's several people. It's very popular. Um, but we're not here to talk about other people. We're here to talk about you because you are the guy, the guy Windsor. Um, so how can people the sword man? <laughs> the sword man. Uh, although you wrote a book about no, that wasn't about swords, but how can people get that book that is not about swords? It is about solo training uh, or any other book about swords that you've written. And I think there's probably about twenty now. Um, well, the best place to go is swordschool.com, which is my, yeah, which is my, my website, which has all the various things. I have online courses, books, the podcast is on there, a bunch of other resources. And yeah, that's probably the best place to go. And actually, you know, I do like swords and I like sharp things and whatnot, but my absolute favorite thing to do is actually being in a room teaching students. Mm-hmm. That's actually, I actually like that more than the actual fencing. Really? So, huh. yeah, absolutely. Uh, well, so if people want, I mean, that's great. I mean, that, that that's good to know. Anyone listening, this is the guy you want to teach you. Um, what about social media? Do you do that? Do you do, uh, they can put up, so I can put up there and show people? I, I, I have, I, I do have social media accounts, but um, I don't go there. Other people go there. And I, I sometimes, I hire somebody to do stuff on social media to get the people on social media, off social media, and onto my website and onto. I do have a Discord server. <laughs> really? Um, the closest thing to like social media. Yeah, I have a Discord server. It's for my students. So it's only for my students, people who bought my books and courses and training me in person and whatnot. So it's vetted, right? The problem with social media is everyone's on there and not everyone's very right, nice. That's true. Right? But on my own Discord server, people can talk about swords and. Everyone there is interested in swords and everyone there is, is nice. And anyone there who, if anyone kind of gets through our filters and turns out not to be nice, they would get immediately sure. ejected. Um, so it's, it has all the benefits of social media, but none of the problems. But I also can't tell so, people about this. I mean, you're talking about something that's more. I can't direct people to your Discord server. No, no, no. no. But, but, but anyone, but anyone who, who buys my courses or books or whatever um, gets an invitation onto the Hey, what about me? I didn't buy your book, but I I have read several of them. I'll invite you Okay, perfect. All right, I love Discord. Uh, And I'm going to put, even though you're not going to mention it, I love that you (laughs) use social media to get you off. Uh, I will still put your social media links on there so they can at least get in touch with you and how you transfer them, how you get them off the social media into your classroom. I'm going to leave that up to you. Honestly, honestly, don't don't get in touch with me on social media because I won't see it. Okay. Right? But if you go to sourceschool.com, there is a contact thing and that goes to my email and that i will see but i don't i mean sometimes i find out a year later that somebody sent me a message on a social media platform and 
because somebody who I've paid to go and do something on there says, Guy, are you aware that there's this message here? And I'm like, no. no. <laughs> <laughs> so, right, so yeah, right. I, mean, I do have social media stuff and people can go and do that if they want, but you won't find me there. And if you do send me a message there, I probably won't. Fair enough. It. I'm going to, I'm going to put life, life is too short. I'm going to put it up anyway. Uh, and I will, with that caveat that you may not get to you. Uh, but, but however, I do have social media and I do use it. So if you want to find the show, it's fascinatingnouns.com. You can find us on Twitter at fascinating noun on Facebook at fascinating nouns. And of course, if you're just listening to the audio only version of this, there's going to be a YouTube video version and that's youtube.com backslash slash Daniel J. Glenn. Uh, but Guy, this has been absolutely fascinating. I wish I was in the UK and I could take a class or two with you. Uh, I'm a little klutzy until I start to learn things, so I might need one of the blunt swords or possibly even a foam one. Uh, but nonetheless, I'm very interested. We'd start you on a blunt. And and if you come out to, if you come out to LA, I'm going to force you um you know not very not forcibly because you could you know maim me and kill me and kick me in the nuts but i'd like to go to the getty with you and check out this manuscript um and if not i maybe i'll make a couple of calls and see what the old funk lord can do and get myself into the getty uh but until then guy this has been absolutely fascinating thank you so much for being on the show today thanks for having me it's been lovely talking to you thank you and i want to thank everyone for listening have a good night Fascinating Nouns is a Glencoe production and is hosted and produced by me, Daniel J. Glenn. The show producer for this episode was Sarah Brandt. The Fascinating Nouns introduction was produced by Daniel J. Glenn and E.A. Barrientos with music and sound design written and performed by E.A. Barrientos. And I'm guessing after listening to this, you never want to miss another episode. You're going to want to subscribe. We are on all of your favorite podcasting platforms, and we even have links right there on our show website, which is fascinatingnouns.com. You can find all the links right there. And let's say you don't have a favorite podcasting platform. That's no problem. You can listen to every episode right there on the website, which is, once again, fascinatingnouns.com. And while you're there, don't forget to sign up for our newsletter. It's a great way to learn more about the episodes that you're listening to, find out about upcoming episodes, and to just keep in touch with the community. It's right there on the website. And speaking of community, there's no better way to stay in touch than on social media. And you can find links to our show's Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Pinterest, and YouTube pages right there on the front page of fascinatingnouns.com. And speaking of YouTube, there's a video version of this episode there right now, uh, as well as other past episodes and all future episodes. It's going to be right there, youtube.com backslash Daniel J. Glenn. It's a great way to see all the guests and, uh, you know, check it out live and in person. Feel like you're there in studio. Great way to do it, youtube.com backslash Daniel J. Glenn. And finally, if you like this show, you're going to like everything that I do. Go to DanielJGlenn.com and check out all of my projects and see what's going on. Once again, thank you for listening. End of transmission.